0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode six of the Full Stop podcast. I'm Emily Sinkowitz, and I'm joined by Sim Care. Hi. For the past six months or so, we've been the silent sound editors behind this podcast. And to celebrate our time here at Full Stop, we'll be introducing this episode. We're coming to you from the snowy Berkshires, where we actually first met one of the subjects of this interview, Karen Balin. Karen is a reviews editor at Full Stop and has recently published her book, Blackfishing the IUD, with Wolfman Books this past fall. Blackfishing the IUD is a collaboratively written memoir about reproductive health and the IUD, gendered illness, medical gaslighting, and activism in the chronic illness community. In this episode, she is in conversation with Amina Kane, the author of the acclaimed short story collection Creature, out with Dorothy, whose highly anticipated upcoming novel, Indelicacy, will be published this February by FSG. Amina's book is described as a ghost story without a ghost, a fable without a moral, and a down-to-earth investigation of the barriers faced by women in both life and literature. Without further ado, here's Karen Bailyn and Amina Kane.
1: Okay, well, I will say... Hello, Amina. It is so nice to be talking to you. So, we're here to discuss our books. We both wrote something. <laughs> and my book came out this past October, and your book is coming out in February. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, congratulations.
2: Thank you. Congratulations to you. Yeah, your book is a really wonderful book. I read it in October for the first time and then I reread it in the last couple of days. I don't know if if you want to say a little bit about it, but I find it to be a very warm book, a very witty book. It's also super serious. There's pain in it, different kinds of pain, your pain and the pain of other women. It's a lot of different
1: things, which is one of the things I appreciate about it. Thank you so much. I feel so touched that somebody would not just read me, but reread But yeah, I feel like we should contextualize our books a little bit. So I'll say that my book is called Blackfishing the IUD. And this is a book that I wrote, I wrote it in 2017, kind of quickly over maybe six months or something like that. And I wrote it after being diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease. And In 2015, I had the copper IUD inserted, uh, which is the copper intrauterine device, a very popular birth control device. And after a very brief period of time, I became very ill. I had it removed in an emergency manner. And very quickly after that, started experiencing incredible pain. This led to a diagnosis of this autoimmune disease. and, And it led to me Learning and understanding that there are tens of thousands of women online gathering together to confirm that things like this have happened to them as well. I was in pain. I was activated, vulnerable, upset, and ready to say that I had made a connection between the copper IUD and the early onset of autoimmune disease in my case. And I wanted to write a book that would make that case So that's what my book is about, to give our listeners some context. And it's a memoir. It's, you know, it's my story, but there's a lot of research. And then there's also writing from other women who have stories that are in some sense similar to mine, but also really different, that this device affects women in a few different ways. And then I will say of indelicacy, I have so many different thoughts about it. But I think that something that has struck me about it is... There is certainty in it and there is also a desire for certainty and this desire for the certain sentence and the certainty around one's life too and one's, one's desires. That felt... Your book is about a woman who is being incredibly certain about her desire to write. That is like the, the statements of desire around that and the certain statements. Are so vast and are kind of the always in the narrative but it felt like the sentences themselves were practicing becoming certain Mm -hmm. (laughs) so Mm -hmm. as somebody who has like i mean i'm sure many could relate as somebody who has not felt so certain in my life i was very kind of just focusing on that a lot as i read and really asking myself a lot of questions about how does one become certain there seemed to be such like dedication or this practice around saying things, mm-hmm. or then I would say like saying the things. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of those sorts of moments and maybe that feels really abstract and maybe we'll get to concretize that concretize that in some way in the conversation, but um, I, yeah.
2: yeah. Yeah, no, I think so. I mean, when, when you said that, I, I thought about this line when Victoria, the narrator says, I will die if I can't write and then I will have wasted my life which is a pretty certain thing to say. You'll die. I'll say a few things about Indelicacy. It's a novel and there's a narrator named Vittoria and when the book starts out she's a cleaning lady at a museum but she's kind of enthralled by the paintings that she's and other art that she's seeing in the museum every day um, kind of blissfully looking at them and and sometimes blissfully, sometimes not blissfully, trying to write about what she sees, and makes some friends, uh, ends up marrying a rich man, um, then has a maid, tries to become friends with the maid, that doesn't work, and uh, it's about a lot of things. I mean, for me, it's a lot about seeing, about desire, about friendship in a way, about one's calling, In life. It's not about love or marriage really but (laughs) it's about freedom. I've been saying that it's set atmospherically in the late 1800s. It's not actually like historically set there. It's not really the time and place aren't really named but it has kind of references to the past and yeah maybe that's enough of, of an introduction of it. Can I ask you a question? Please. <laughs> All right. Well, you mentioned when you were introducing blackfishing, the IUD, you mentioned the other women whose, whose stories um, you include in the book, in their own writing. And the book starts out with some kind of background on the term blackfishing, where that comes from. There was a, a documentary called Blackfish that, that sort of stops SeaWorld in its tracks of harming whales ors and you you to use a phrase that I really like in the book you aim to blackfish the IUD and so after that the very first kind of page you don't begin with your own chapter but with uh, a note that another woman has written to you about starting to talk a little bit about her her adverse experiences with using the copper IUD and I wanted to ask about why you chose to to start with someone else's kind of note to you or another woman's voice or, and maybe even a little bit about why it was important for you to include.
1: Yeah. Well, that woman in particular means a lot to me. I started emailing back and forth with her a bit because our stories were so similar. We met through listservs of women, you know, thousands of women get together in these listservs to say what's happening to them. And her story was so similar to me. My IUD was in for six days, and then I got so ill, and hers was in for three. And we both, shortly after, became diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis, and we had the same autoantibodies, the same blood markers. Mm-hmm. It was really uncanny. So meeting her was very, I don't know, a little bit surreal to me, and I really appreciated our communications. and because I was on these listservs, I couldn't believe just the rawness and vulnerability of women talking to each other and what those voices sound like when people are asking for help or expressing the pain that they're in and how bad it is. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because they're in a space where they're actually going to be believed, Um, not only because they're not talking to doctors or the medical industrial complex who won't listen to them, But not even just that they're talking to other women, because there's plenty of women who don't believe this or, you know, gaslight this. Because I think, well, for all kinds of reasons, but I think that one is that there's a lot of anxiety around birth control and a lot of desire for this birth control to be okay. So these listservs are full of women who have seen the other side. And it's like they've seen a ghost or something. And now we've all seen the same the same supernatural thing and so we don't seem crazy to each other yeah and that allows women to say things that I don't think they say to their partners to other people in their lives to their doctors and a lot of these women as I learned as I would ask them to contribute their writing very much do not believe that they are writers and one of my challenges in asking people to contribute to the book is that they were horrified to think of their writing being in a book because they are like, I'm not a writer. Mm -hmm. And I would kind of say, no, you already written, you wrote something that's amazing, and it should be shared. But for them, they were like, no, like, that's not it. Or how could I write? And so I felt like their space of writing is so different from mine, because I've long been kind of an experimental writer. So Mm -hmm you know, that's just not the only voice that can talk about this. And uh, I was so enthralled by the way that women tell their stories in these spaces and the things that they're actually able to say and admit and describe because they're not going to be stopped or interrupted or disbelieved. And I was like humbled by their writing and also their writing is better than mine in a certain way because it's not, it doesn't have the goal to be good. It's just like there's a different kind of communicative current. Right. And so I thought it was really important to include their voices. I really wanted also to bring other women's stories and to explain that it's not just this sharp, oh, you'll know, mm-hmm. you know, oh, you'll have a Karen Balin. and you'll get completely... <laughs> by this quickly and then you'll know yeah it's like no there's a lot of women who unravel slowly and I wanted to really honor that that is a big part of this too because what I would love is if part of the publication of this book is that a woman reading it and maybe not my story but one Mm -hmm. of the other women's stories would help it would help her make the connection to say oh gosh I never thought it would have been my copper IUD because that's not hormonal or nobody tells me that that's why.
2: And because my doctor told me, no, that can't possibly be the reason. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So I thought it would be she'd have a better chance making that connection, probably listening to people other than me. So I wanted to make sure that that person could could have that chance.
2: Right, right. It makes me think about, you know, early on in the book, you're unpacking your library, and you conjure Walter Benjamin, you know, unpacking his library, and you unpack them by gender, or you talk about kind of arranging the books by gender, and you say, of course, this is not right, you know, like, I don't want to draw these binaries. But at the same time, I mean, when I think about what you've gone through and what these other women have gone through and you're writing sort of side by side, there's something similar there. It feels important and, and kind of beautiful to think of your voices there together in the same way that someone might put uh, women <laughs> together on a bookshelf, you know? Not because, not because they, they always belong there together or, you know, I think as you, as you show in your book, it's not as if all women are sort of just essentially understanding about an experience like this. So, you know, you've, you describe working with a couple of different rheumatologists and the first two are sort of horrible. And one is a man and the next is a woman, you know, she's not, they both sort of say, and I, and I think maybe the the gynecologist you had who removed the IUD was also a woman, right?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah. she,
2: so she says to you, what a waste, you know, like when you're having it removed. And then the, the first rheumatologist says, you know, God forbid RA." Uh, and I think the, the female rheumatologist says, you know, put away your papers. <laughs> like, don't don't read these studies anymore. There's this sense of there's this sense of what women sort of go through, you know, a kind of medical gaslighting that can happen more often to women than to men, more often to people of color. But at the same time, not this kind of fantasy that like all women are great, you know, and that like a female gynecologist or rheumatologist is not also going to be sort of under this system where they're like, don't read. And what a waste that you're, you know, not going to be using what you paid for.
1: It's a real sadness. It's a (laughs) hardship to have to grow up and adult. And one of my Adultings has been to have to realize that not all women are feminists. It hurts my heart. And I'm sure I'm not always a feminist, you know, maybe I vacillate or, or err in certain ways. But I say in my book, some women act as the projectiles of men. And uh-huh. I think that many women are systematized to do so. And I'm sure I have acted as the projectile of many men in my life as well. And I think that women doctors, I think of them as that, because I think that the medical industrial complex is such a masculinist system Mm -hmm. that anybody, any of any gender, is just getting implicated in and and having to act in, in these ways that are incredibly compromised. And, you know, medicine is something that has just been cut from its roots, you know, its roots. That were with women and empirical women healers, you know, and, you know, those women were killed. So Mm -hmm. I feel that the, you know, religious dogmatic kind of era that moved in on those on those healers after they were all murdered has sort of set the tone mm-hmm. going forward in wow. different ways. Um, I'm in a place of real bitterness about the medical profession. But I I, I mourn that interacting with women is not the cure to yeah. <laughs> to life.
2: But it's so important, obviously. And, and there's, you know, in the book, you, you talk about, you say, I read now anything out of only desperation going to literature and philosophy to understand what's happening because medicine is destitute of connections. There's something beautiful about that, right? At least that exists. Like if you're not going to find it within medicine itself. And actually I think that your book does a really beautiful job of being that, of doing that, of making those connections. There's your voice in the book and experience your pleasures and pain Other women's, you know, kind of what they've gone through. There is philosophy and literature. There's lolly willows. The book enters these different spaces, but they're not actually separate at all. I mean, to me, they all feel very connected. And later on, on that same page, you talk about if one woman alone were to notice, and you say this after reading me, that since she's had her copper IUD inserted in her uterus, she has experienced depression, anxiety, heart palpitations, or joint pain, then writing's writing, literature is better than men. And you say, but I have to be more explicit. And then you introduce us to Lolly Willows. (laughs) Like that that's what being more explicit. And then this conversation that she has with Satan. Um, And then after that, you say, I should be explicit about what happened. And then you talk about studies linking UD with rheumatoid arthritis. And you talk about your own experience. And I love that being explicit can mean talking about Like Lolly Willows talking to Satan, or it can mean talking about your own experience, that they're both important to the book that you're writing and that those connections are important. When you set out to write the book, do you feel that you were already kind of carrying these different things with you, like Lolly, or did you discover them as you were writing? You said that you wrote this book within six months. Was it a different experience? Are you usually kind of writing a book within that kind of space of time? Or was this book different in that way? I'm always curious where people start from.
1: Yeah, it was different. I mean, this was a different kind of thing. And I was working a lot. I was working almost full time at a bookstore in Philadelphia. And I think I was adjuncting that semester too. So I was just always, every day was kind of occupied Thursday morning was like the only time I could write and it was only time my partner was not in the house which was like essential and I just worked on it for like two hours every Thursday morning for this period of time so when I was writing it was sort of this for me a really magical experience that I have never experienced any other time you know, wonderfully, because I've never been that overworked, but where there was no dawdling, because it was really genuinely like, if I do not write these two hours, it's not going to happen ever again this week. So it really did force me in that way. And I felt a certain urgency. And this is like zeal of paranoia of like, I must make every connection. I see something and I have to put it all down. I feel like wild. So I felt that way. Yeah. So, I have to confess something to you. Okay. <laughs> I was really surprised when you, I heard earlier in this conversation that your book is potentially set in the late 1800s. I'm
2: glad, actually.
1: And I read it, I don't think I've thought about it that much. Yeah. But I think maybe a default mode was that I read it as incredibly contemporary. Mm-hmm. And I think that the reason is because it feels very contemporary, and I'm thinking, even thinking of all kinds of things. But I mean, I'm thinking, yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> about when this narrator, Victoria, goes to a reading of literary men, and then she says. I wanted to lock them in the room after the reading was over and make them listen to each other forever. Let them look at the sky when they got tired or the wastebasket. I thought they deserved that. I wanted to tell them how terrible the reading had been, that it had ruined the writing, how shallow the interview, how much I had hated all of it. When I walked out of the room, I simply said, you're both worms. And they looked at me, not knowing how to respond to a statement like that. Of the worst kind, when you open your mouths, you are male worms eating from a toilet. <laughs> and it was impossible for me to read that as anything but contemporary, because I feel it so contemporaneously.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the thing I started doing, I think, in a few of the stories in Creature, where I had sort of different time periods streaming through me as I wrote them kind of at the same time. And so when I started writing in delicacy, it was sort of the same thing where I had it. It's all about feeling like it's not, it's not a book that's truly set in that time period. And yet it has, I guess that's why I use the word atmospherically because I'm still conjuring that kind of period somehow And when I first started writing it, I think it was even more sort of in the contemporary, but then when I let myself sort of as the imaginer, like go sort of like not further into the past, like going further through time, but just sort of allowing myself to feel more of the 1800s than than today, I was kind of able to find my place in it. So I just never really... I have been doing this thing for a while where I think both with time and setting, I just mishmash different things together for myself because I enjoy them together. And so I don't, I think I've just kind of gotten used to that. So I think for me as the writer, I'm sort of like back in this past, but I don't do any sort of research or like, like I know I'm not writing a historical novel, but I just have the sense that if like, you're writing fiction and maybe if you're writing anything, well, it depends on what you're writing that you can just do whatever you want. You can be like, I'm sort of in the past and I'm not totally in the past, you know, like that this, I know sometimes like it gets said, like you, who's your audience? Like you have to consider your audience and who are you writing for? And I sort of often so selfishly write a space that I just sort of want to be in. So I actually like hearing that that wasn't like a, your experience of reading it, that there was like this more contemporary, because I want the feeling of both to be able to exist, or not just both, but different registers of place or feeling or, or something like that. I was kind of worried when I was going to submit the book. I was like, what will editors think of this? Are they just going to be like, what is this? But you know, like, this is so... And when I say that to people, like it's set atmospherically in the late 1800s, especially if I say it to people who ask me, what the book is about, maybe people who who don't write themselves or, you know, like family or acquaintances, you know, like I feel so flaky saying that sentence, but I'm like, (laughs) it's true. It's how it felt for me. But yeah.
1: One of my questions that I was going to ask you for this conversation, which as you were like introducing your book, I was like, Oh no. Was that I had interpreted your book as being contemporary, but in this like a real contemporary where all like all screens and cell phones have been eliminated. Mm-hmm. And that it was like a fantasy of contemporary life that wasn't like ruined mm-hmm. by what we are and what we do and what we've become.
2: That's true because I feel I need to escape those things. And so I think I had to write something in which they didn't exist.
1: Yeah. And looking for this. I mean, it's like, like this is so simple, but it's like a fantasy of what life would be like if there wasn't a phone in the house. Or I ate alone, I would daydream by candlelight in front of the dishes that sat quietly on the table. Sometimes I brought my notebook with me, writing in it just a sentence or two. A leaf falling from a tree, I could see it from where I sat. Now someone would step on it probably my husband just that spacing and that allowance for the objects you know just like candle leaf plate table to come back into life I mean I don't know I, I feel very voided by kind of our our contemporary existence so I kind of interpreted it that way and then I was sort of interested in it as this like reading it as this contemporary novel that was still saying that a woman was like, a woman artist would like somehow seek felt, like it was like very middle March. Like I somehow need to like seek fellowship or like province within a marriage in order to like gain or have abilities. And I don't know. I mean, maybe I have to give up on this because now you have like revealed that this was not your intention.
2: I think that some of the things that Vittoria, the narrator, goes through still happen, you know, or if they don't happen in quite such an explicit way, it's it's just like a different register of the same thing. Women have been gaslit, medically gaslit, but gaslit in all kinds of ways for a long time and they still are as you know as, as your book shows it may be it's wrong to say that it's set atmospherically back then because it actually is sort of set in different times at the same time you know at the like the setting of the book in my mind I never say where it's set but in my mind it's some mishmash of Chicago, London and a completely made-up place. I do have these I think for myself like touchstones of different times and and places but in the book itself I don't name them because it's not it doesn't feel important to me in terms of how the book should be read and and because I do want because part of what I felt interested in was being able to sort of have something said in different times at once that does have a lot in common with the contemporary at the same time that it has something in common with the past I mean for me I didn't I saw that storyline as, you know, sort of, although I guess it can still happen, like marrying a rich man, having a maid as something in the past, that she wouldn't be sort of valued as a writer, as a woman writer, as something more in the past. But, But I still think that there are, there's still traces of that. Those things still exist, like I said, but just maybe in a different, in a different register. Of experience. I'm glad that that that's not the way you read it, because I I've also sort of had to wonder why I was just the question of like wanting to sort of. I've never wanted to write a historical novel. Not that there's anything wrong with writing historical novels, and in certain ways, this felt slightly close to that. And so there was a question like, like I didn't feel very contemporary writing this. So I'm glad that there can be an experience of that reading it, you know, because I was like, why am I sort of going back into this past? Like, what am I trying to get here? But I think a lot of it for me has to do with pleasure. And I want to get back to this idea of pleasure, too, in terms of your book, because I know I've brought up that word, but I didn't really say what I meant by that in terms of your book. But so, for instance, I find it pleasurable to look online at pictures of shaker households, you know, (laughs) like very... Sparks, sort of like her getting back to another time type of furniture and room. Um, in a way, I think probably like the setting and the time that I was sort of kind of spending time in in that way was taking me to that kind of space, uh, if that makes any sense at all. I think about the visual so much, even when I'm writing, just sort of setting up a scene that I sort of want to be in in the same way that I might want to look at these images of shaker houses
1: you should visit here have you been to the shaker village in pittsfield massachusetts
2: so you're like surrounded by this right
1: there's like i haven't been there yet but there's some stuff up here
2: okay yeah i probably should
1: if you ever want to go on like a pilgrimage to the shaker village i might
2: come by yeah
1: yeah yeah i really i should visit them i'm kind of fascinated by them I mean, I like just, like, the that they're so, like, earthen and, like, there's, like, a simplicity to their materials, right? Yeah. But then there's such, like, an extravagance in their aesthetic or this sort of unnecessary way that they're building their structures, too. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah and I don't actually know, like, what outsides of Shaker houses look like. It's just more of these rooms that I look at, like, yeah. sparsely sort of decorated. but. Pleasure is something I, I think about a lot as a person <laughs> and as a writer, and I guess as a reader, and when I was reading Blackfishing, the IUD, I was struck by it that this is such a serious, kind of important topic, but it, the book, there's, there's still this pleasure in it. There's like the pleasure of running through an or- urban forest at dusk and like high-fiving leaves on plants and shouting a woman's name who you're attracted to and the pleasure of reading a book like lolly willows and the pleasures of hot and connected sex so i was just describing the book earlier as as warm and then also just like the pleasures of of language i love your sentences and i love your ways of kind of moving through information or, or a narrative so like there are points in the book where you kind of go through these different facts and then you say, okay, and then another, okay, like, that. I don't know, just this, just that use of okay and the sort of, like, repetition of certain phrases that come back into the book are, I think, pleasurable for me as a reader. And you were saying earlier, part of the, one of the reasons it was important for you to have these other women's texts or our voices is, Because, you know, like you are a writer and you are, you know, interested in language, obviously there's probably not a way for you to, to write this book or any book without language coming into it, you know, coming into your experience of writing it, but also for the reader to receive it, which as a writer and a reader, I just really enjoyed that about it, these, these things. And, you know, and it feels like, like, everything it is to be alive is here. There's like the physical pain you've experienced, but there's also this pleasure of your life or the pleasure you've experienced in your life. And these, you talked about that period of time, like this kind of, the things that were part of your life during the time of writing this book that were coming in. But I also just, just feel like in, in talking about just like the pain of, of rheumatoid arthritis, that there's also like all the other things that you are coming into the book in a really beautiful way you know, all of your experiences?
1: Well, I think the thing that's coming to my mind, which is one of the, like, the points of sort of anguish about my story, and I'm sure many people's stories who have become sick on a new birth control method um, in any way, is that a lot of times we're motivated to do some, something new with our birth control because we've met somebody new or something new and exciting is happening. And yeah. for me, you know, I had just met, in 2015, my partner. And it was such an amazing thing to meet him. It was just like a miracle to meet such a special person. And there's just like the love that was, I mean, it was just like my whole heart was like opening out. And so much she was like, oh, wow, it was just like the most magical time. And about three months into our relationship, I was just like, I'm ready to become this IUD lady. I wanna be this like woman who has an IUD. This is the moment. And so it was a time when I was so inspired and opened up and had this new wonderful person in my life and then like match it matched with like all of a sudden I was very, very sick. So that clash was really present that like the best thing that was ever had happened was like happening. It was just like Uh so wonderful. Like while this horrible thing was happening I mean, one thing that's like a real connective through line for me, just personally, like if I'm thinking about like how to narrativize our books together, is that I was so excited because I was finally in a relationship with somebody that did not feel dominated by my terror of not being able to make it on my own. And all of a sudden I was just like meeting somebody on my own terms with my own life and my own sustainability. And it was just like kind of cruel to me that like finally I felt like I could actually love authentically because I had actually figured out how to take care of myself and be okay. And it felt really taken away from me in that moment because all of a sudden I was very sick and actually quite needy. So the first three months of my new love were like, I was like being so cool. That was just like the new me who knew how to be so together with it. And then all of a sudden it was like, <laughs> yeah just like really having somebody you're newly love see you being so weak and weak in spirit or you know needy physically weak physically grotesque it was just so intense but so I don't know yeah that time in my life was full of a lot of those clashes of different kinds of sensations and I was, like, really trying to, like, keep the love story going in the middle of being, like, we were just, like, so newly, like, getting together. And then, like, I was, like, experiencing such horrible pain in my feet. And I was, like, experimenting with these orthopedic shoes to try to help myself. But I don't know. I mean, it was just such a mashup of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, that's what life is like, I suppose. But this was, like, a particular not so, yeah. I think the book really expresses, you know, I'm in some way, it's like a descriptive of the knot that I was in, right, or the, or the mash or something. Yeah. yeah,
2: that makes sense. And, yeah, it when you describe the shoes too, like that sense of like space for the toes, I think was it Renoir, where there's like the this description of like, the sheet, you know, like the sheet touching the body, you know, just like the pain that can cause or. yeah.
1: yeah. The the painter Renoir had RA and yeah, it was said that his sheet was tented over his body when he slept at night because even that would cause pain. Yeah, it was very, it was difficult to read accounts like that as I was kind of going through it and he really became quite, quite severely in pain. But he said such horrible things about women that I started to not mind. (laughs)
2: Yeah, and I love how sort of at the end of the book, you're talking about Baker, right, who wrote The Peregrine, and how you say one of my favorite things about him is that he doesn't compare anything to women, which is one of my least favorite things in the world, like men.
1: Metaphors about women. Yeah,
2: metaphors about women. So I really love that. It's in your your epilogue. He never writes that anything is, is ever like a woman, and it's my favorite thing about him. But yeah. I, one of my close friends here has rheumatoid arthritis. She's had it since she was pretty young, I think maybe like 11 or 12. And so, of course, I know like what what she goes through. But I felt like in kind of reading this book, too, I understood maybe a little more, you know, about like what the pain, some of her pain might feel like.
1: It's hard to describe like, pain. That's for sure. You do a really
2: good job. That's <laughs> like such a weird thing to say, but you describe pain in ways that I've not heard it described before or read it so
1: I wonder about asking you about because we're talking about the kind of time period that I wrote Blackfishing the IUD in which was like so specific and because of all these things and indelicacy is in some sense is in some sense light I don't think that's the right word but it's not a long novel I'll say that yeah the chapters are short Mm -hmm. it just feels like there's some air and there's some lightness in it the plot feels um, willing to move around at whim. There's different friendships that kind of come into it or different decisions or modes or events, changes that just seem like easily enough to start to happen or develop. The plot is not labored. And even maybe Victoria, like wears her marriage lightly or wears her fate a bit lightly then I would say that it also courts it's that certainty but I almost want to say it's courting a kind of plainness if plainness is like to see something and to be able to just simply say it or simply see it um so I don't know those are some of the ways that I I see it as um there's some sort of like easy or light gesture about it. Mm -hmm. But then I start to suspect that this is a book that you have been working on for years and years and years. Like, what does it take to produce something that has that feeling? So I would love to hear the story of how this book has been brewing. Was it made in a month in the lightness of its character? (laughs) You're shaking your head.
2: (laughs) No, I'm a super slow writer, and pretty much everything I write is short, shorter, and still it takes me a long time to do it. With any short story that I've written, I have to do like a month of pre-writing to even like enter the actual space of the story. And for this novel, that translated into like a year of pre-writing, meaning most of what I wrote during that year doesn't appear in the book now. And so I guess in total, like I probably worked on the book for about on and off for five years. So there's definitely struggle. There's a lot of struggle for me in the beginning to find something, to find its voice, to find the space of it. Of the short stories I've written, they normally don't really have a plot. And this, I started to sort of write a plot without necessarily meaning to. And my editor for the book, Jeremy Um, Davies he said something because I was having trouble figuring out not how to end the book but sort of how to lead up to the ending and he was like yeah you kind of did this thing where you like wrote a plot and now you have to deal with it (laughs) so having a plot it definitely didn't feel light I think in certain ways there's a lightness because I don't I'm not someone who cares deeply about plot while I'm writing it's not what drives me like it's more like a space that I'm creating like I said, as a writer, I kind of want to spend time in and I hope like some readers want to spend time there too. And it's maybe certain kinds of situations that characters might be in together, like in those spaces. And so in that sense, there might be some kind of lightness towards the plot. But I found that as I tried to write this and rewrote a few times the last quarter of the book, I found that one of the hardest things for me in writing it was was dealing with the plot that I had kind of gotten going unwittingly but what I always want is a sense of lightness there there was definitely a point when I had this realization that what I want in a room which is like not a lot of furniture like I'm sort of a natural minimalist in all areas of my life I realized at a certain point that when I write a piece of fiction for instance I sort of Go into the space, it starts to get populated. It gets too populated. There's too much in it. So then I end up taking a lot out with this book. There was also a point halfway through writing it where I got rid of half of it because I hated it. I <laughs> read it like I had to pull out all the stuff I hated. Mm-hmm. And then in that sense of like not much being left, I could sort of expand from there. But anyway, like in a room, I don't want there to be a lot of furniture. And like in a piece of writing I'm working on, I often don't want there to be a lot in those scenes either. I think I'm always trying to clear space in my life. In the past when I've written a story, and I guess with *Indelicacy* too, I knew I was finally done because i finally made like the right amount of space in it or, and there was still something else going on because it's obviously not just about like an empty space. But for me, I just have this feeling that if you do have images and a piece of fiction, they can be seen more clearly and more strongly if there aren't like too many other things surrounding them which I don't even know if that's entirely true. It's just like true for me, like in the kind of spaces I need to sort of inhabit. If that book feels light and it's it's a shorter book, I definitely like labored and definitely <laughs> struggled and had my own sort of love-hate relationship to things. And, and yeah.
1: I'm struggling. Like I'm using all these different words, light, plain, but well, also... Well, I'm attracted to plainness.
2: I can just say that to you. Because if you're like yeah. I'm attracted to the word plain, like I'm... At one point, I had I went through a bunch of horrible titles for the book. I don't even totally know what I think of the title now, but one of them had plainness in it. Oh, really? But that's what I like about Shaker rooms is the plainness, and I don't know why. Like I'm just always attracted to plainness.
1: I mean, one of the things that's sort of plain in it then is this sort of it's unsentimental about marriage. You know, Victoria just you know, the through line statement is, I would like to write, I believe in myself as a writer, I will write, I'm going to keep writing, I'd like time to write, all of these different statements around writing and the desire to write. Who are you carrying with you? Like, I guess in Blackfishing, I make it very explicit who I'm carrying with me. It's like part of the book that I announce what I'm reading and talk about it in terms of everything. But in this book that is plain, who is there? Well the characters
2: are af- they're they're actually all named after other characters in other books. So like Vittoria is from uh, Clarice Lispector's The Apple in the Dark. Dana is from Octavia Butler's Kindred. Solange is one of the maids or sisters and Jean Genet's The Maids. Antoinette is from White Sargasso Sea Generies. I did that not as like a they're not rewrites of those characters by any means, but just as a way to kind of point to the fact that I'm always thinking about other writers and other books when I'm writing. The ones that I love, the ones that make me want to write when I read them. And and so, yeah, it was just more a way to sort of nod to that and kind of like honor them a little bit. There are certain writers that are kind of always with me. I mean, Lee Spector is one of them, Marguerite Duras. Like, I mean, to a point where... I feel almost like a broken record. Cause I'm like always, I feel like I'm often talking about like the writers that, that are, that are important to me, but I think in some ways, like I really like a lot of novels of the past or like Victorian novels or things like that. And so I think in some ways, I didn't set out this way to do this, but in some ways the, was a little bit of like an homage to like those kinds of novels you know like being in conversation with them a little bit I mean I I definitely feel you know for me that I was in conversation like with other books and kind of those specific ones but also just like all the books I love
1: yeah do you are you a fan of Japanese literature
2: um I've read some Japanese literature but I don't know that I've like read enough to say that I'm like like a fan or any kind of expert or anything like that.
1: Yeah, just, some of the Japanese authors that I really love have that quality to me. Maybe they have a little bit of a shaker house <laughs> uh-huh. home quality. Sometimes that's what I find. I I like pursue Japanese literature not to clump it all together, but but some authors come to mind. Like I really love Fumiko Enchi. Have you mm-hmm. come across her? Um, Yeah, um, I've only been able to read in translation two of her novels. I think one is called Masks or The Mask and then The Waiting Years, but just has that kind of, I don't know, a little bit of that kind of spare rolling out of the situation in a really frank, open style that is also quite unadorned and just always proceeding forward with the appropriate amount of tension and exposition. It all feels like so appropriate. So she's somebody who really comes to my mind. Yeah. I always feel so, I mean, I can't write like that. I cannot write. Sh- I now want to do that. Like this is a beautiful, <gasps> what a beautiful writing assignment. Like write a shaker room. Uh, yeah. <laughs> But now I feel like I want to give you a room to write that's, like, really, like, like if yeah. I have to write a shaker room, yeah. which would not be my, like, blackfishing, which is, like, every sentence is, like, three layers of t- kinds yeah. of thinking or whatever.
2: But I love that about it.
1: But what room is that? Perhaps it's just, like, a Baroque room. Yeah,
2: yeah.
1: I don't
2: know. I think so. But, I mean, there's so many things I, I really like about blackfishing the IUD, but part of it is that is that kind of layered feeling and these connections that happen between everything that feel really important and warm and necessary because yeah you're not going to find it in medicine (laughs) but you can find it in this book i i wanted to ask real quickly about how your readings have been like if you've if you've met at your readings any women who've kind of gone through something similar to what you've gone through, has that been different just in terms of doing readings because of the nature of the book and your hopes for, I'm sure you have different hopes for the book, but like that it, that it reaches, you know, one of them would be like that it reaches women who need it, you know, who, who've experienced something like this or, you know.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm getting that kind of feedback and it, I mean, I'm going to like start crying. (laughs) It means everything to me. It really means everything to me. Yeah, it's exactly why I wrote the book. Mm -hmm. I mean, the book has a lot of artistic pretensions in it. But those are just because I can't help it. Because I (laughs) because I've been doing this kind of stuff. But all I want and all any woman wants who's had a device in her that's hurt her is to tell tell other women about it. And I just have such a visceral feeling. And it doesn't mean that I think that everybody needs to get their IUD out. I completely respect that this device is working in mysterious ways and we don't understand. And, but I want anybody who needs to make that connection to make that connection. Mm-hmm. And I also want anybody who's had a horrible time with the copper IUD or the ID or anything to just feel validated. And I get that feedback a lot too, that people who had it and it made them really sick, but they just like, I don't know, they internalized it as their own weird story. Right. They didn't know it was a whole thing and it just like, you know, they have told me that it has helped them change their narrative around it Mm -hmm. or understand what was going on better. I can't help it. I mean, I totally, this is like foregrounded by that. I just 100% support women making any choice they'd like to make with their bodies, whatever it is. And I also understand that everybody is different and I really respect bio-individuality. But with those caveats, I get really excited when somebody tells me that they got it taken out. And I can't help it.
2: Imagine. yeah. I
1: just, I can't help it. It was so traumatic for me. It's very biased and personal. But there's this moment in this documentary that's really wonderful on Netflix called The Bleeding Edge, which is about the device industry and specifically about metal devices, metal implants that are sickening people. So this issue extends from the copper IUD to things like metal on metal hip implants Mm -hmm. that are made with cobalt,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. um, all kinds of things that are, you know, giving people symptoms that are incredibly similar to mine and other women who have had the copper IUD. The scene in The Bleeding Edge, where some women are protesting Eshore, which was another birth control device that was made out of nickel that was inserted in the fallopian tube And many women got incredibly ill on it, and it was taken off the market recently. And actually, it was taken off the market, pulled from the U.S. market a week before the Bleeding Edge came out. So Bayer knew what was coming to them, and they pulled it. Uh So that's the power of culture and filmmaking Mm -hmm. and documentary. Mm -hmm. But there's a scene where those women are protesting outside of somewhere where they were doing the insertions. And a doctor came out to argue with them and said, there's no proof, there's no proof or something. And there's just this scene, I mean, I watched this documentary a few times and it was very emotional for me to watch it because I felt very connected. Mm -hmm. But there is a scene where this woman just says in this voice that I just recognized as my own, please don't put it in women. (laughs) Like we're talking about the plainness. Like if your novel is a novel that has arrived at plain sentences, that are cleared out like Mm -hmm. that to me was like just the plainness of what she knew and saw and I lost it I mean I was just like totally lost it um because that is the plainness I feel just please take it out um which again (laughs) foregrounded with please do whatever you would like with your body but yeah yeah so I just feel like uh, whatever literary project i'm up to i i totally want women to be able to make this connection if they need to and i do get that feedback and i love getting it i have a little file on my computer where all of those sorts of emails or things go because they they just make me feel so good they're yep. just wonderful yeah
2: yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah i mean i learned so much reading the book. Um,
1: I might ask you, as like, because I'm jealous of you for a very particular reason. Oh, yeah. I'm jealous that your book is coming out. Yep. I feel like that uh, is the best. Instead of already time. having come in? Yes. Uh-huh. Like, it's just like a time when it could be anything, it might feel like anything. Yeah. Who knows what will happen? It's, ex- ah. <laughs> okay. it's like exciting to imagine how people might respond. And then after it's out, it sometimes when books, when my books have come out, I've just felt a little bit like freaked out afterwards, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm like so excited to follow your mind. And I know other people are. What are your hopes for, for this book? What, what do you hope its life is like?
2: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you're right. There is something very nice about the period of time before the book comes out. In the past, I think I've always just sort of been purely excited. I have friends who, when their box of books arrives and they see their book for the first time, they feel sort of more complicated about it. They're sort of like, you know, they're excited, but at the same time, they're just like full of dread. And I think in the past, I've just had sort of pure excitement and it feels more complicated this time with this book. I don't know why It felt really weird to have people start reading it. For a long time, you know, like no one had read it except for two people, you know, but then just the idea of like people reading it felt really strange to me. You go along for a while with it just as something that exists but is not read. So to have it be read is both very nice. I guess all this to say that like I'm both excited and I like this period of time, but also like, it is complicated.
1: If I figure out a way to get you a reading at the Shaker Village, the original <laughs> Shaker Village of this country. Yeah. <laughs> Would you come here and do it? Yeah.
2: Okay. Yeah. Sounds pretty nice.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good to talk to you. It's so nice to talk to you. Yeah.
0: Thank you, Karen and Amina, for that beautiful conversation. Be sure to check out their new books, which have filled us with so much insight and excitement as readers. As always, you can contribute to Full Stop to make episodes like this happen by becoming a patron at patron.com slash fullstopmag. Thank you to Matt Orenstein for providing the music for this episode. Also, we'd like to take this time to introduce the new Full Stop intern, Hannah Snell. Both Sim and I have worked with Hannah on Karen's Blackfishing the IUD podcast, available on iTunes, and we can't wait to see, or rather hear, what she does here at Full Stop. Thank you for listening, and thank you for letting us be a part of this
2: podcast.